with David. Um, my father's name is David, and my brother's name, my older brother's name is David. So for the first five years of the uh, first five years of my household, all the male members of my family were named David. So you can imagine when I came along, John, what did I get called? David. I got called a David a lot for the first 18 years of my life. I was called David, or David, I mean John, or De-John, like I'm some kind of mustard. And occasionally I would actually get my real name, John. And weirdly, it didn't end when I moved out of the house. I've been called David dozens of times by people who do not know my father or my brother at all. They get this quizzical look on their face and like, why did I just call you that? And I'm like, don't worry, I get it all the time, which also makes them have a quizzical look on their face. Sometimes I tell them the story, sometimes I just shake my head and be like, I don't know what it is about me that says David, but I get it a lot. To this day, if someone calls out the name David anywhere near me, I'm very likely to turn to see if they're actually addressing me. It's that much of a force of habit. Now, there's nothing wrong with the name David. We've got a lot of great Davids in this congregation. Um, But being called by the wrong name most of your childhood does tend to lead to a certain amount of resentment. And even now, the name stirs up a certain number of emotions and might get an eye roll from me. As my faith has grown, however, I've spent more time with the David of the Bible, and I've grown more introspective about the name. All the Davids of the world are ultimately named after this David in the Bible. So who was that guy? Well, an hour ago, we wrapped up a 19-week adult enrichment class to answer that question. So why did it take so long, 19 weeks, and why did we spend so much time on just one dude? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, his life is one of the most thoroughly documented in the Bible. Half of 1 Samuel, all of 2 Samuel, a little of 1 Kings, and two-thirds of 1 Chronicles are about his life. So there's a lot of material to go through. He's also a bit of a paradox, He was an adulterer, a murderer, a conspirator. He had a number of unhealthy relationships with women and made many questionable parenting decisions. But his life is also one of total submission to God, reliance on his grace. He's a wholehearted worshiper who is accountable in a way that few kings ever had been or have been since. Most importantly, I think he's a person described as a man after the Lord's own heart, Despite all his failings, he's described this way twice in Scripture, once by the Apostle Paul and once by the prophet Samuel. And in both instances, it's put forward as a contrast to Saul, who had preceded him as king. So let's look at those very briefly. Firstly, in Acts 13, Paul is giving a talk to the synagogue, to the leaders in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. He gives them this history lesson, and he, he recounts this uh, phrase. He says, after removing Saul, he made David their king, and God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, this rejection of Saul that uh, Paul is referring to happens in 1 Samuel 13, but a little context is necessary to understand exactly why Saul is being rejected as king. So Israel has settled in the promised land at this point, and they've gone through the period of the judges. And if you know anything about the period of judges, it was a time when Israel followed after the Lord wholeheartedly and then forgot all about him and went on their merry way, and then bad things happened to them. They would cry out to God and say, oh God, help us, we're really sorry. 
sorry that we've paid no attention to you for many years now. Please save us. And God would say, okay, since you've repented of this behavior, I will deliver you. He brought up a judge, and the judge helped to fight off the enemy that had conquered them or in some way deliver them. And then Israel for a time would be like, great, yay, we love you, God. And then they would forget him again. And this cycle went on and on and on for generations. And finally, they got to the point where they just said, we don't think this judge thing's really working out for us. We'd really like to have a king. And God said, I'm your king. Why do you want a king? I'm your king. You don't really want a king. And they're like, no, 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 we really do want a king. And God eventually relents and says, fine, have it your way. Have a king. You do know he's going to recruit your sons into the army. Some of your daughters will wind up as concubines, and he's going to tax you. So you still want a king? They said, oh, yeah, we don't mind all that stuff. Give us a king. So he said, fine, have it your way. Here, I give you Saul. Saul will be your first king. And they loved Saul because Saul looked like a king. He was tall and he was handsome. So that's exactly what they wanted a king. Somebody who looked awesome, who would wear the crown, would look really good in robes, and would lead their armies. Turns out, however, Saul was a bit of a meathead. Uh, He had some moments where he shined, but by and large, he lacked a firm foundation. He was impatient, he was headstrong, he was impetuous. Ultimately, he really had neither confidence in himself or in God. And the final straw in Saul's life, a series of mistakes that he makes, but the final straw comes in 1 Samuel 13 when Saul offers a sacrifice before a battle, which was not his job. That was the priest's job. The king was not to do that, but he got impatient waiting for Samuel and decided to go ahead and do that. And he is just finishing that sacrifice when Samuel shows up and says, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command the Lord your gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, of course, David is this man after God's own heart that Samuel said would come. Now, keep in mind at this point, when these things are said of David, that he's a man after God's own heart, He's a shepherd boy still at this point. He's probably 12 or 13 years old, the youngest of his family, an unlikely person to have been uh, identified as the future king. So pause for a second. Does hearing that that happens at that stage in his life change your perspective at all about this? Does God still think of him as a man after his own heart 50 or 60 years later after all of his life has gone by and he's done a lot of different things when he's died? You know, I think we can be confident that he did. You know, God knows our future and our past, and nothing about us is hidden to him. People change. Uh, We go through ebbs and flows of faithfulness. We make good decisions. We make bad decisions. But God sees the entirety of our lives all at once. And God, when he looked at a young David, and saw much, he saw much of himself. He saw what David was, and he saw what David would be, someone who acted like a king, to replace the one who just looked like a king. Of course, God also saw all of the flaws, all of the bad stuff, the character flaws, the poor choices, and we're going to take some time to look at those now. And this might be hard if you have somebody who thinks that David is like your favorite character in the Bible, and maybe you haven't really looked at all of the sort of junk in his life. We're going to look at the junk in his life. And so I want you just, as we go through this, be mindful of your own heart. Check what you're feeling as you hear all of this and how you feel about David as we explore these episodes. So what are some of the negatives in David's life? One of them is a proneness for violence. 
which is not terribly uncommon in Old Testament times. It was a violent era in which they lived. But he has a little bit more, maybe, than the average person. And we see this really first in the incidents with Abigail and Nabal. Now, Nabal uh, was a landowner, had a bunch of sheep, and David's men, they were on the run from Saul at this point, and they had never done anything to upset Nabal's people. They hadn't stolen anything from him. They hadn't taken any of those sheep or mistreated any of the servants. And so a time comes when David needs some supplies, and he asks Nabal for help. And Nabal is like, who the heck are you? Like, why should I do anything to you? Even though his servants are saying, no, this is a good guy. He watched out for us. He protected us. He didn't steal anything. You should be kind to him. Nabal is a foolish person. In fact, his name means fool, which is a heck of a name to give a child. But um, he's dissuaded. Ultimately, Nabal says, I'm not going to help you at all. And David is incensed, incensed to the point where he says, men, grab your swords and I'm going to go. We're going to go and we're going to wipe out Nabal and every male member of his household which is a little bit of an overreaction to a slight. Yeah, yes, he was shown disrespect. Yes, what Nabal said wasn't very kind, but to decide that that's a death sentence was a little bit hasty. He is prevented from shedding blood in this instance by Abigail, though. Nabal's wife knows what's coming, goes out to David and says, please forgive your master. He's an idiot, as his name says, and please don't kill us all. And so Abigail um, intercedes, and then God intercedes as well, because Nabal then ultimately like seems to have a stroke or something like that, and he's dead within a couple of days. And Abigail becomes David's wife as well, which we'll talk more about in a little bit. So that's one instance. He's prevented from shedding blood in that instance, but in other instances he isn't. There's a, there's a really kind of troubling passage where he, as once he's established as king, he kills two-thirds of the people of Moab, and he does it in a kind of weird way, and you have to read that yourself in 2 Samuel 8 if you wish to, but the, the thing that's hard to stomach about that is Moab was Ruth's people, his great-grandmother. This was, these were people, these were family members going back a few generations, but he kills two-thirds of them. And then late in life, he also gives some instructions to Solomon, who's succeeding him as king. Some people that uh, Joab, who was his right-hand man for a number of decades and his army leader, another guy named Shammai, who had been part of Saul's family. Shammai curses David when he's leaving Jerusalem, when Absalom takes the kingdom. Again, more about that in a minute. Uh, David doesn't kill either of them, but he leaves instructions for Solomon to kill him when he's gone. So he, he doesn't take revenge on those people immediately for things that he doesn't like that they did, but he makes sure that Solomon, he gives instructions to Solomon, make sure that neither of them die of natural causes. And again, this history of violence isn't uncommon in this time, but it is to the point that when David decides, hey, I'd like to build a temple for you because it doesn't make any sense that the ark should be in a tent when I live in a palace, and, David, and, and God's response to him is like, well, that's a nice idea, but A, not yet. I didn't ask for this. We're not going to do that now. And B, it's not going to be you. Your hands have shed too much blood. I'm going to leave that to Solomon, your son, to do that, because he's a man of peace. You've been a man of war and of bloodshed, so you are not the one to build my temple. So we see this proneness for violence. We see some poor parenting as well with David. His parenting is actually summarized pretty well at the end of his life in 1 Kings. This is a harsh verse, and it's about Adoniah, his fourth-born son. 1 Kings 1.6 says, Now his father, Adoniah's father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? 
So up to this point, we have lots of examples where we sort of question what David's doing and how he's parenting, but this verse pretty much sums it up. He wasn't really good with the disciplining of his children. And again, we have multiple examples preceding this that sort of lend credence to this idea. The first being his son Amnon. Amnon was his firstborn son and heir, and he raped his half-sister Tamar. And David's angry when he finds out about this, um, but he doesn't punish Amnon. He doesn't really do anything about it. And not only that, he doesn't punish his son. He doesn't discipline his son for this grievous thing, where the penalty for that would have been death. He does nothing. But also, he doesn't defend his own daughter. Tamar is his daughter, and he does nothing. And Tamar goes and winds up living with her brother Absalom and is described as a desolate woman. So there's two failures here, his failure to do anything about his son, his failure to stand up for his daughter. And then this comes, um, again, we'll talk actually more a little bit about Tamar and women issues in a little bit, but this discipline issue becomes a bigger deal even later because Absalom, Tamar's sister, that's his third-born son, he murders Amnon in revenge two years later. And then he goes off and he lives in exile for three years because he fears his father's retribution. And again, David does nothing. He hasn't called for the exile, but neither does he end it until Joab, his right-hand man, urges him to do so. And then Absalom returns to Jerusalem, but David refuses to see him for two more years. And there's really no explanation for it. Why is he doing this? Is he okay? Like Amnon basic, or Absalom just basically did what the law required by having Amnon killed, but David can't seem to figure out, like, is, am I okay with this? Am I not okay with this? My son has died, but my other son did it. He's just pretty confused, as you can imagine, but in the midst of that confusion, he does nothing. He just doesn't act at all. Again, so it's five years between the murder of Amnon and them being finally reconciled, but by then it's too late. There's this root of bitterness that has grown in Absalom's heart. It's against his father, and it grows to the point that he rebels and overthrows his father. He literally kicks him. Well, he doesn't kick him out of Jerusalem. More about that in a minute. He raises up an army, and uh, David flees. David's life is saved at that point only by the fact that he has some shrewd plotting, and he's a better military tactician than Absalom is, and God's sovereignty. Um, so Absalom's rebellion ultimately fails, and Absalom is killed in the battle that follows. So there's another son that's died in violence, and David is distraught at Absalom's death. Later, we have Adoniah, who we've already heard from. He's the fourth-born son. He proclaims himself king while David is still alive, which is generally a bad idea, and after David has already decided that Solomon is going to be the one that succeeds him. And Solomon, of course, is the second son born to him by Bathsheba. More about her in a minute. And so Adoniah rebels because he thinks, I'm the oldest one alive now, and so it should be me that's king. But he doesn't know. He hasn't been disciplined, as we already saw in in 1 Kings. Um, So he rebels. He gets a couple people on his side, but ultimately the rebellion fails. David makes sure everybody knows that Solomon is the one who is meant to be the next king. And so... uh, He lives initially. He's still alive when David dies, but then he continues to plot and try to undermine Solomon. He too is eventually executed. So if you're keeping score here of David's first four sons, three of them die violent deaths. One of them we don't know about. David had a son with Abigail named Daniel, and he disappears. So we don't know what happened to Daniel. He probably died. 
But we know these three all died violent deaths. And it seems clear from all of these examples that David doesn't seem to know how to discipline his children. He doesn't know when to set boundaries. He doesn't know how to enforce those boundaries. He doesn't know when to show grace. He seems rudderless and completely clueless. So he does nothing. He has laissez-faire parenting. He just sort of says, let it all go as it's going to go, and hopefully it'll all be fine. And it isn't. It isn't fine. So we have the proneness for violence. We have some poor parenting. We also have some issues with women. We talked about Tamar already. And then there's also Michal, which is his first wife. This is the daughter of Saul. And uh, Saul gives Michal to David when he has won a bunch of victories for him. They're not estranged at this point. But then once David flees, Saul tries to murder him a few times. David flees. And at that point, uh, Saul gives Michal to another man, and she becomes his wife. Well, when David becomes king after Saul's death, he says, well, I want Michal back. Well, the problem is, is Michal is now married to somebody else, and that guy is quite in love with her. And the scripture records that when she was brought back to Jerusalem, his, her husband came wailing, following after her, just absolutely distraught about it. So David doesn't much care about that guy. He wants his wife back. So, you know, it seems to be that it's against her will. And then later on, she's hurt. She's wounded by this whole experience of having been pulled away from her husband. And he criticizes David in the scene where he, the ark is coming back to Jerusalem and David dances before the Lord. And, he, and she's like, what are you doing? You're making a fool of yourself. And that's where he says his famous line, oh, I'm going to be even more undignified than this. And if you read the rest of it, it's kind of, you know, it's a great phrase, I'll be even more undignified than this, but the way he says it to her and some of the things he says after that are a little bit cold and callous. Uh, we discussed this in our Sunday school class, and we weren't all on the same page with this. I see a lot of coldness and callousness in this. Other people didn't see it quite the same way, but um, I think he could have handled it better. And I think we all agreed he could have handled that situation a little bit better. We also have Second Samuel 5, also at the time when his kingdom is newly established, and he's settled up in Jerusalem, and it says, David has many wives and concubines. And this is a problem because Deuteronomy 17, in God lays out the law, he says the king should not have many wives and concubines. This is part of their instruction to Israel. If you have a king, it actually says when you decide you want a king, you, and because he knew they would eventually ask for one, that king should not have many wives and concubines because it'll be a distraction. It's going to be difficult for the king if that's the case. And David is proof that that's true. And so is Solomon later in life and many of the others as well. So we have Tamar, we have Macau, we have all these wives and concubines. We have, of course, most famous of all, Bathsheba. And it's to that story we turn now. So what did David do wrong? You probably know this story, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. We don't have time for that anyway. Uh, but what did David do wrong? First of all, he was home when he should have been out with the army. That passage begins with, at the time when kings went out to war, David was at home. He should have been out. He was not doing his duty he was not out with his men as he should have been. He was home. And what was he doing while he was home? He was taking naps in the afternoon, and he was hanging out on his ceiling looking at things he shouldn't have looked at. So sure enough, he wakes up from his nap. He goes up on his roof, and he's in the palace, so he probably has a good view of the whole city. And he sees Bathsheba, and she's very beautiful. And he should have been, oh, nope, time to go downstairs. Come back up when the coast is clear. But he doesn't do that. He looks, and then he looks longer and he starts to have ideas. Oh, I'm the king. 
I can pretty much do whatever I want. And her husband, Uriah, one of my mighty men and closest friends, he's off at the war. So I'm going to do what kings do. I'm going to take advantage of that situation, that power I have over her. So he sends for her. So the seeing becomes looking, the looking becomes plotting, the plotting becomes acting. And sure enough, she's brought into the kingdom and dot, dot, dot. And he thinks he's gotten away with it, but then she's like, uh, I'm pregnant. And now he's got a big problem because now his sin is going to be exposed in a few months when it becomes obvious that she's pregnant and it's not by Uriah because he's off at the battle. So he starts to plot. How can I cover my sin? So he plots. He's like, I'm going to bring Uriah home and he'll sleep with his wife and then everybody will know it's his. Well, Uriah comes back, not sure why I'm here because I should be out in with the army, with my men. And because he's such an upstanding citizen, he's like, I'm not going to enjoy the comforts of being at home when my men are out there sleeping in tents. So he refuses to go home. He refuses to see his wife. And David's like, dang it, foiled again. I'll get him drunk. That's what I'll do. So he doubles down on the plot, gets Uriah drunk. But that still doesn't work because even drunk Uriah has morals more than David does at this point. And finally, he's like, all right, the only way to do this is I got to get Uriah killed because then I can marry his widow. So so now he's gone from, I mean, this is a downward spiral of epic proportions right here. He conspires to have Uriah killed in battle. He sends Uriah back to the battle with instructions for his commanding officer to put Uriah where the battle is the fiercest and at just the right moment when there's a lot of enemy soldiers, pull everyone back so he'll be outnumbered because it's going to take a lot of enemy soldiers to kill Uriah because he's one of my best. So it happens that way. Uriah is killed and so are a number of other soldiers. So it's not just Uriah that pays the price here. A number of other soldiers surrounding Uriah don't get the message to pull back and they are also killed. So look at all the collateral damage here. You've got Bathsheba who's victimized. You have Uriah who's murdered essentially. You have all of these other men that follow as well. So what if this happened today? What if this was a story that was told of a leading figure in the Christian community. Well, the repercussions would be in two arenas, wouldn't they? There'd be a legal consequence. And what's the legal consequence for all of this? A pretty long jail sentence. I think you could get them on first-degree murder here because it's essentially like hiring a hitman. He lets the enemy do his dirty work, but the conspiracy would earn him a pretty significant jail sentence. And within the Christian community, you probably can't come back from this. You'd lose your job if you were employed in the ministry. You might lose your family because you've had an affair. Uh, You're going to definitely lose trust. You're definitely going to lose your reputation. And if you ever do try to get back into Christian ministry, you're going to have to prove that you have totally repented from that, and you're probably going to be starting at the very bottom and working your way up to the point where you'd be allowed to teach and have any kind of authority again. So after all of this stuff that we've just covered, do you still think that David's a man after God's own heart? It's a little harder to think of that way when you take account of all of these dark parts of his life. But I think that if we don't think so, if we don't think he's a man after God's own heart, after exploring all of this, we need to be reconciled to the fact that our judgment might be harsher than God's. Do we consider any of these things unforgivable sins? What are the appropriate consequences for these things? 
Now, rest assured, there are serious consequences, and the prophet Nathan spells them out in his admonition of David. This is another very famous passage you've probably read. Nathan goes to David, tells him this story, and basically traps him morally into saying, this is wrong, and then David says, or Nathan says, you are the man. You're the one that's done this, and David's immediately convicted. Nathan appeals to David's sense of justice and empathy, David's reaction is at first anger, um, and then when he realizes, this is you, it's you that's done this. And Nathan characterizes David's sin. He points out that David wants even more than what God has given him. There's greed at work here. There's gluttony at work here. There's despising God's limits. There's jealousy of the gift that had been given to Uriah and his wife. And David is prescribed a punishment, and the punishment is fourfold. One, your family will live by the sword, and we've already seen that that happened. There was violence in his family for years after that. Your own household will rebel against you. That happened twice, with Absalom and with Adoniah. Your wives will be given very publicly to another man. That happened when Absalom took the kingdom from him. Absalom took his father's concubines and made them his own. So that happened. And fourthly, the child conceived with Bathsheba will die, and that happened first. So all four of those things came to pass, and they were all part of the punishment. So the takeaway from that is that God doesn't withhold consequences, and those consequences are devastating, not only to David, but to Bathsheba, to their child, to other members of his family. But he doesn't lose his kingdom, he doesn't lose his authority, and he doesn't lose his reputation. None of those consequences happen, as would if that happened today. So why not? That's a challenge for us to ask why those consequences were what they were and weren't what they would have been if that had happened today. So was there something about David that made the fallout different? And is there something about God that we've failed to understand or emulate? And I would suggest that it's both of those things. That God's idea of forgiveness and forgetting is very different from mine. And that David was a different kind of guy. And some of our best evidence of that is found in how he repented. And that's where we want to transition into what made David so extraordinary. So I'm done bashing David, and now we're going to look at the really good stuff. Firstly, repentance. When we transition from this Bathsheba story, you can't finish the story without looking at Psalm 51, because it's perhaps the greatest example that we have ever had as what true repentance looks like. So I'm going to read it. I don't have a slide for you, unfortunately, but I hope you can turn to your Bibles and follow along with me. In verses 1 through 3, David starts by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Um, so in those first three verses, you hear my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. He owns it. He owns his sin. There's no hedging here. There's no, I'm sorry you feel that way, or I chose my words poorly. There's, I am in the wrong. He's not sidestepping. He's not shifting blame. He's not minimizing sin. He owns it. In verse 4, which I already read, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David understands that all sin is an offense against God, that yes, Uriah was sinned against, and yes, Bathsheba was sinned against, but ultimately, all sin is an offense against God. He owns that, and he says, you're proved right when you speak. He understands that he deserves what's coming. 
He's not going to try to get out of the consequences or get out of the punishment. He's owning that, and he knows that he deserves it. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This isn't a recent thing. This is a a condition that I've been in since the beginning. Verse 6, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Um, Truth was the antidote to the sins. If I had been honest, if I had been forthcoming, I wouldn't be in this mess. Uh, Truth leads me into correct thinking, and it's the gateway to accountability. And then when you get to verse 7 through 12, all the things that David wants. Listen to the verbs here. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Cleanse me, wash me, turn my mourning into dancing, remove my guilt, change me, restore me, renew me. This is David's heart. His heart is, I want to be back to where I was with you before. I want your help, and only by your help can I get there, that you can remove this guilt from me and renew me to the place where I was. And then verses 13 through 15, he explores what will happen if that does happen. If you forgive me and if you do cleanse me, what's the end result going to be? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So he's basically saying, like, you forgive me and I'm going to tell everyone. I'm going to teach others what I've going to learn and it's going to help them to to not sin the way I have, and I'll praise you like never before. And then lastly, he concludes with a, a, a word about sacrifice. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David's saying uh, God wants brokenness and contrition more than he wants dead animals. The point here is the brokenness and the contrition, and that's what he's offering. The dead animals are meant to bring about repentance, brokenness, and contrition, but if you can get there without killing a calf, good. So we see David's heart here and how he repents, completely, fully, without excuse, total submission to God's rightness and resting in his justice. So we also see some more good stuff from David, total humility and submission to God. We see that primarily, or at first, in his relationship with Saul. You know, David is thrust as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, into an incredibly awkward situation. He's been named the next king while the current one is still alive. That's a dangerous place to be in, historically. And not only that, not only is he this shepherd who's been anointed as the next king while the current king is still alive, he enters Saul's service. He's right in front of the guy he's going to one day replace. And then he becomes a famous war hero, and along the way, Saul figures out, this looks like it might be the guy that's going to replace me, which puts David's life into even more danger. And of course, lots of murder attempts happen. Saul tries to kill David multiple times, usually then says he's sorry, and then he does it again, and then he says he's sorry, and then he does it again, to the point where David eventually flees. He realizes, this guy's going to get me one of these days. It's no longer safe for me to be here. And Jonathan, his best friend, Saul's son, helps him. 
And David is then on the run. He lives in the wilderness. He lives in caves. He, um, and he goes by himself when he does. He does not lead a rebellion, which he could have. He was super popular at this point because he defeated Goliath. People loved him. He had enough people where he could have started a rebellion and probably overthrown Saul. He didn't do that. He left, and he left alone. The people eventually did come to him, but they came of their own volition, not because they were recruited by David to do so. And then even more than that, David passes on multiple opportunities to kill Saul. Twice he has this opportunity when Saul is alone and not defending himself, and David has this opportunity to kill him, and he refuses to do that. He says, far be it from me to strike the Lord's anointed. Now, you could make a strong case that David would have been justified in killing Saul because he was a bad king and God had already rejected him, but David refused to strike down the Lord's anointed. His rule would have to come under God's condition and in God's timing. That's submission. That's submission to God's plan, is that you refuse to take matters into your own hands. No matter how bleak the situation was, David trusted in God's plan. And we see it again in the situation with Absalom. Now, Absalom was beginning this rebellion, and he was doing it openly. He was out in the streets recruiting people and, like, shaking hands and kissing babies like a politician. And David knew what was going on. He knew that this seed of bitterness had grown in there. And he could have put the rebellion down early, um, or he could have fought back once the rebellion, the plotting became open rebellion, but he didn't. Neither case, he didn't put down the rebellion. He left. He packed up his things, took his household, and left. He gave the kingdom to Absalom because his mindset in that moment was, how do I know this isn't God's will? Maybe he's done with me. Surely I've done some things in my life. Maybe he's rejected me as king just like he did Saul. He hasn't told me that, but how do I know that's not the case? How do I know Absalom isn't the one that should be king? Total submission to God's will. He just said, let it be as it's going to be. And Absalom takes the kingdom and, but eventually, of course, David gets it back, as we've already seen. And then finally, so we have this repentance that's unbelievable, this submission to God. We also have mercy. You know, David is a man who had received much grace, and people who've received much grace should give much mercy, and David does. And the most notable example of that, there are several, but the most notable one is Mephibosheth. You probably know this story as well. It's in Second Samuel 9. David asked, is there anyone left from the household of Jonathan who had died with Saul many years before? Is there anybody left from the household of Jonathan to whom I can show kindness? Because he was my best friend, and we had promised, we had covenanted with one another that we would watch out for our kids. And he learns, yes, there is. There's one member of Jonathan's household still alive. His name is Mephibosheth, and he's a cripple because when Saul and Jonathan were killed, the nurse who was caring for him dropped him, and he was crippled in both of his feet. And so David calls Mephibosheth and says, come into my presence. And Mephibosheth, easy for me to say, thinks this is the end for me. Like, I'm the son of, I'm in Saul's line. And the custom when you become king is you wipe out all the males of the other people so that they can't take the throne back. Um, if you've seen Godfather, you know that. Like, you just don't leave them alive. It's too dangerous. And so Mephibosheth thinks, this is the end for me. He's going to kill me for sure, but he doesn't. In fact, what David does is he says, you're going to come and eat at my table forever. That's mercy. That's mercy right there, when you show grace to somebody who should be considered your enemy. So what do we do with all of this? You know, David's faults are clear. 
Apparently, being a man after God's own heart doesn't mean that you're perfect, and that's good news for us because we are not perfect. In a sense, seeing what David's example is, it lowers the standard so that we can't be ones that say, I'm not good enough to serve God. We can't get into that place of feeling like we're not qualified. But also we have to be careful because one of the dangers of this story is that it can produce self-righteousness in us. We should not look at him and say, I'm glad I'm not as bad as that guy, uh, because we are him, and he is us. Look at Matthew 5. The reality is that I have murdered and committed adultery by Jesus' definition, because Jesus says if you have hated anybody, you've murdered them, and if you've never looked lustfully on anybody, you've committed adultery. So Jesus is basically saying we're all as guilty as David is, so don't think yourself better than him. I've also had moments of bad parenting, and Brennan and Owen can uh, testify to that. I've been a bad boyfriend, and I've been a bad husband, too, and you can ask Naomi, and she'll confirm that. You know, the obvious truth is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Pretty sure that's in the Bible somewhere. Now, what makes David different and what can make us different in the same way is our willingness to wholly, fully, wholeheartedly repent, to show radical mercy to those around us, including those who would be our enemies, and to be fully submitted to God, to his plan, his timing, and his purposes in our lives. So yes, David is a man after God's own heart, and his pattern has been recorded in history as an example for all of us. His life is a picture of the human condition, deeply flawed and nevertheless loved by God. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for this example that um, we have recorded in Scripture for us to dive into, to study, to learn from. I just thank you so much that we have that in front of us and that it can drive us to our own repentance. It can drive us to showing mercy. It can drive us to being submitted to you, this example. And I thank you that someone so deeply flawed can still be called someone who is a man after God's own heart. That gives me hope because I know I'm just as flawed and I know you can use me, and I know you can use each person in this room, that all of us um, have that within us. And so I pray that this example would motivate us to be people who repent more deeply, who follow you more fully, who give mercy freely. Thank you for this example. Thank you for Jesus, the man of David's line, who was the ultimate example of all of those things. It's in his name we pray. Amen.